the study of those kind of texts became a narrower and narrower field of interest until they started to get published and until the Zohar was published. All of a sudden, you know, over the course of a few hundred years, you know, it went from being niche, nobody knows anything about this, to being, you know, both recognized, sanctified aspects of Judaism. Imagine yourself under a starry sky, around the warm glow of a sacred fire, where speakers gather to share their wisdom and insights. Creating a sacred space where all are welcome to warm their hands, here are your hosts, Caitlin Stormbreaker, Sarenth Odinson, and Jim Two Snakes, discuss spirituality, mythology, animism, and culture around a virtual sacred fire. Welcome. 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 Won't you join us around Grandfather Fire? I sought wisdom from many wells. I did not sit idly at home. I took up my belongings, my great brimmed hat, and I walked and I learned because I listened. I walked out my front door and I went to those I didn't know. And I said, please teach me. And I listened. I listened for as long as they would speak. I listened for as long as I could draw breaths without snoring. I listened for as long as the fire lit and longer until the stars blinked into existence. I listened. I listened. I listened. And when I was told what to do, I did. I gave an eye. I gave my life. I hung down from a tree. I changed my gender. I wandered every world. I listened to the dead. I listened to the living. I listened. I listened. I listened. And that is the challenge I bring to you, to you, to you, listen, listen, listen. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Around Grandfather Fire. You're listening to episode 101. Believe it or not, we crossed that threshold. I am your host, Jim Two Snakes, joined as always by my good friends and co-hosts, Caitlin Stormbreaker and Saren Thodenson. How are you both doing tonight? Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That pretty much sums it up. (laughs) Fierce vote of confidence. (laughs) I'm, I mean, I... I have, I'm not the one to speak at all. You, you work two <laughs> jobs and you, it's almost like you work two jobs, Sarah. Um, but man, going from a desk, a desk job in quotations, because that desk job doesn't actually pay me, but from a desk job to a 10 hour work day where I'm on my feet all day, like busting mm-hmm. my ass is Adds up. 
Yeah, my body is definitely protesting and saying, what the fuck is wrong with you? What is this? Why? <laughs> yeah, there are many mornings when I wake up and go, when did I get so damn old? <laughs> Warranty is obviously day. expired. Yeah, the, the gaslight is on, check engine light. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Running on fumes here. So how about you, Jim? Oh, well, you had an answer first. I didn't know. Oh, well. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing pretty good, actually. I'm, oh, no, no, not just ADHD is being lovely. Um, <laughs> and plus coming out of trance. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, hello, Odin. Right. <laughs> right. I wasn't expecting to come on that strong. Um, so I just got out of, like, literally, like, half an hour ago got out of watching Wakanda forever. Nice. So I loved it. I cried. Mm-hmm. Um highly recommend it. Um yeah, don't want to spoil it, but yeah, good stuff. Um, awesome. Yeah. So yeah. I've I've had a really good day. Yeah the excellent the day I realized that the actress who plays Michonne on Walking Dead is one of the main characters in uh, Wakanda in that universe I freaked mm. out and was like oh my god <laughs> I love her so much that's awesome yeah I, I've heard good things about it nothing but good reviews it's been it's been getting a lot of praise so I'm excited I think they set the bar rather high when they brought out Black Panther and I was like I, I don't know if they're gonna be able to hit this right exceeded my expectation I, I I'll be honest, I lowered the bar a bit for my expectations, especially with all the stuff that Letitia Red had been up to. Right, and right. How much the production got pushed back because of her anti-vax stance. Um, mm-hmm. I was like, man, th- this could be a train wreck. So I just kind of lowered my expectations and I was completely blown away. That's awesome. Arguably better than the first one. Really? That's wow. Good. That's really good to know. Because I have to admit, Killmonger is like one of my favorite villains in the whole MCU. He's he's really a good, he's a great villain. Um, and I love how Black Panther informs Wakanda forever. It's it's good stuff. I don't want to spoil it, but it's so <laughs> Excellent. Um, and I think one of the things that I find really endearing about it, besides obviously just being a fantastic piece of media, is I especially click with the ancestral scenes. And... Mm. They really, every ancestor scene I've seen from this particular series has really spoken to me. And I just I right. love it. Um, aside from that, uh, got off work on time today. So like minor miracle here. I'm not having to work as much OT. So yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, aside from that, we, we just uh, are enjoying our time together as, as a family. And I've got no complaints. I mean, we're in a really good spot. Excellent. Excellent. Well, now that there's a question I'd like, I'm not doing too bad, just as my usual, just working a lot of hours, trying to make the most out of my weekends. Uh been doing a little bit of divination because I've been trying to figure out some changes in my practice. I'm not quite ready to talk about that yet, but I'm getting some positive signs. We're going to see how that fleshes out. Just it needed a shake up. Mm. As things do sometimes. Oh yeah. yeah I I'm actually it's weird how parallel yours and mine's path tend to be mm-hmm. because my path is in a bit of a, a shakeup and some things are getting shaken off and out and other things are 
getting stronger and coming more to the forefront. And like you said, there's things that are happening that I'm not ready to talk about right now, but there is a direction that I'm considering going into. And it's from here where I'm standing seems very exciting. And I'm, I'm excited to follow further down that path and see what it brings me. So that's Mm -hmm. really cool. Yeah, I, I think that's actually something that I don't think gets talked about quite enough. Like, yeah, sometimes it becomes necessary to shake up our paths, and that might mean completely different directions and different altars, different deities, different daily practices, different devotionals. It can be all kinds of different things. Um, I think where, uh, like, there's an exploratory phase that I feel like a lot of people are, where you jump around from things to things for a, a lot. And then you get kind of dedicated in a certain area, maybe working really hard on something growth-wise or healing or something else. And it's important to know, like any good art, when to stop. There comes to a point where it's like I you stagnated and you're not going to have any further growth unless you shake things up again. And so, like, I think the hard part for people to realize sometimes, especially when they're just getting into the occult or witchcraft, is mistaking that exploratory phase for a shakeup phase later. And what I mean by that is a, a younger practitioner might look at someone that's been doing for a while and just shook up their practice and go, see, people change their stuff all the time. Not really. I mean, I, I think mm-hmm. they do, but the, the, you know, they, you know what I mean? Like, I think mm-hmm. um, it's a difference between when you're first exploring, it's, it's common to go around to a lot of different things. And that's different than a shakeup, but they're all necessary phases along the way. But I don't think the shaking up gets talked about enough. I think a lot of people think once you get set into practice and I find the right gods and that's the way it's going to be for the rest of my life. Maybe. Well, maybe yeah, not. <laughs> until, you, until you realize that uh, you need to try out some new tools and techniques in order that's to right. further your relationship yeah. with that practice. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, and introduce our guest there real quick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'm pleased to welcome around Grandfather Fire, somebody that I've been following for a while on TikTok. And uh, I like his feed a lot because it varies a lot. There's a lot of talk about the occult and mysticism, but there's also a lot of cooking videos and some just really great uh, thoughts about society or life, and you sprinkle in a little uh, of of noise music with that, and and you've got our guest tonight. So, Richard Cameraman, welcome to Around Grandfather Fire. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, well, I think it's really cool. Uh, I I approached you because you're one of the people that I don't know. I, I get a certain amount of playfulness and and um, experimentation. So I think I feel like you're occult practice. I wouldn't necessarily call it chaos magic, but you're definitely willing to explore and play with things. And when I wanted to talk about a topic like Jewish mysticism, I kind of want, I wanted a conversation with somebody that kind of had that flexibility with us to have that discussion. So I appreciate you coming on. Of course. No. And, and I, and I, I don't think you're not wrong to say my practice is influenced at least by chaos magic, you know, I feel like we, we've all had those those moments of you know reading Lieber Null and you know finding those those glimpses of what right. what we can incorporate into what we do. I, I think we can argue quite safely that uh, chaos magic pretty much influences all of the magic and witchcraft that you're seeing, especially in like social media right now. 
I just, I don't think people realize it, but when you're talking about how a lot of people have deities from different pantheons and some of the different tools that have come into popularity and movement, I don't think we have, we can deny that chaos magic kind of influenced it all to a certain degree. I'd agree. I would agree. Well, I mean, looking at how everything in the world works from our cosmos to our earth to even our own blood cells, how there are certain cycles of changes and transformations, you know, like they say that you become a completely new person every seven years because it takes seven years for all of your cells to die and be reborn throughout your entire body, which they believe explains why your tastes, like your taste buds change as you get older. You know, when you're younger, you may not like Brussels sprouts very much, but when you're in your thirties, you're like, man, these tiny little cabbages are lovely and wonderful. Why did I hate these so much? So to think that our practices remain stagnant and in a stasis form and, and, and stuck for lack of a better words into one area of expertise seems a little foolhardy and a little close-minded like you're walking around with blinders on um so to have that area of shake-up like we were talking about earlier um is very important for self-growth and internalization of things maybe bringing a new light to the practice that you're already currently on um but what i'm curious about richard is your path mm-hmm. What what is it that you do? What what brought you to who you are today? Yeah, um, my path begins with, um, I don't know, being being that that edgy kid in high school who thinks it'll make him cool to like read the Satanic Bible or something. You know, I I, I got really into the idea of. You know, first, just the idea of, you know, medieval grimoires and all of that. Um, And I I thought, you know, oh, how fascinating. And obviously, I need to study Latin because that's the language that, you know, all of this is written in. Um, And I was a terrible Latin student. But um, but that that was the beginning of a fascination with the occult, was starting to collect editions no, I mean, not the fancy expensive editions because I was a high school student, but whatever I could get my hands on uh, of, you know, certain grimoires. And when, as I kept reading, um, you know, that area of, you know, goetic magic and so on, I started to find passages in the ritual prayers that, you know, felt like someone had translated and tweaked and played with prayers straight out of, you know, the, the Siddur synagogue, you know, is like, Oh, wow. Th- this really feels like, you know, the, the shape of the Amida, you know, or, and so I started trying to figure out, well, I, I've always been fascinated with primary sources. I love to trace things back to where they came from. And so it bega- that was the beginning of an obsession with trying to understand the origins of these things. Um, did they come from Judaism in any way? Was this the work of Solomon? Because, um, you know, those are the questions you have to ask when you're first starting this path. Um, and, you know, so it, it created a 
historical framework that I that I view a lot of both, you know, the the broadly speaking the occult, um, but also the Jewish mysticism that this journey brought me back to. Um, since you know, at that point in time, I really wasn't very didn't really feel very affiliated with a belief in religion. Um, but a lot of this, it, it brought me back to a study of my own ancient traditions um, that has brought about an increased affiliation just with modern Judaism too, as well as the mysticism. Um, and so my practice today really is a, a weird syncretic mess of things, but um, primarily, you know, it's, it's, it, 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 I, I still have a soft spot for elaborate ceremonial magic, but uh, for the most part, I, I don't practice that anymore. <laughs> it, it's, it's the magic in the ordinary, in the little moments, um, you know, the, the small prayers, the small offerings, um, you know, I've, found ways of incorporating ancestor, you know, veneration kind of practices into what I do. Um, even though they're not really a, a daily aspect of most Judaism, you know, it's more of a special holiday thing. Um, but, you know, it's, that's where I am. <laughs> I think let's, let's pause there and uh, turn this back into a conversation. <laughs> no. I've been monologuing for long enough. <laughs> what were you going to say, Sarah? Just the, it's, uh, it's interesting how you can float in and out of different practices just as a natural outgrowth of learning, of just developing as a person. And certain things that you thought were so core to your practice fall away like leaves. And there are things that I used to do every single day, and I'm using this pun intentionally, religiously. Um, and some of those practices have changed to where they're almost unrecognizable, but they still have echoes of how they used to be. Mm -hmm. Has that been your experience as well? Yeah, that's 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 a familiar feeling. It is. I, I totally get it. That there's yeah, there there's the things that become so habitual. Um, for a while that that they stick e even when everything else around them changes you know there's little details that are mm -hmm. yeah this this is rote muscle memory this is how things work i mean even something as simple as uh stirring your coffee clockwise to bring <laughs> things in and then anti-clockwise to banish right. things out you know you don't even think about it you're just whatever's in your brain you're like oh yeah no that needs to go away and you're like wait am i doing magic right now what's happening oh yeah totally yeah when i'm cooking in the kitchen i've put together a recipe and suddenly i realize i've organized how you know even though you know it doesn't need to be i've organized how this all comes together by you know the quantities and the numbers of you know spoonfuls and you know, everything's in a very systematic pattern you know and i go i i did something there i'm not sure what yet but that special moment when the ancestors reach out and tell you measure this with your heart and it yeah, tastes right. amazing 
<laughs> oh yeah see i have ancestor who has taken over my kitchen and her name is grandma mary um when she died three years ago she just popped up in my kitchen and was like child you're doing everything wrong let me help you out <laughs> and then my stepson asked me you for a failed. recipe book and i was like i don't think i can supply that time to start trying to write it down Trying being the optimal word. Trying being the trying. optimal, yeah. Yeah. I tried getting my parents to write down their chicken uh, noodle soup recipe, which I love. They got nothing. They're like, yeah. we just throw this shit in a bowl and pray it works. I mean, it's kind. Of, I mean, I, I'm being kind of tongue in cheek about it, but that's almost literally what they told me to do. Just like, <laughs> yeah, throw throw a handful in, and if it seems like it's too much, you've put too much in. Thanks. <laughs> I've seen ceremonial instructions in Latin that were more clear, but yeah, you know, right? Thanks. <laughs> well, it, it is okay, really Grandpa. Do you got to be as vague as Crowley about this? It's a damn recipe, right? Se- season the soup by thy art. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? <laughs> Summon the Scarlet Woman, and she will what? Teach me how to make the fucking soup. Come on now. It, that that's actually a really interesting analogy to think about the differences between ceremonial magic and chaos magic, neither of which I have a huge background in. I have participated in rituals in both ends of the, the spectrum. Um, and the way chaos magic has been described to me is you have these elements and you basically build an experimental ritual but there is a process to it. There are definitely steps that you follow to achieve a specific goal. And then you take notes on whether or not it works and move on from there. Whereas ceremonial magic is more by the book, step by step, you do this and then you do that with these certain elements. You can bring these things in to substitute these things, but they're all pretty much the same. Is is that right in your experience? Does it, that it, make sense? It is and it isn't. Because, I mean, like we've been discussing, the, the, the ceremonial magic, there's, uh, unless you're entering a group that has this, an established way of doing things, and, you know, there's, it's also trial and error and variation every time and scientific method, you know? I mean, that, that's, you, you see, um, I mean, even Crowley talked a lot about, you know, keeping a journal and recording the effect of the way you do things, you know, and oh, but this time I said it this way and I, you know, was facing this direction and, you know, and it, it, it's, it's all, it, it, it all feels like part of a shared lineage because yeah. um, it's n- none, none of it's ever by the book. You know, there's, yeah, these are the, the rules that have been written down in the past that, you know, yeah. So according to these four guys, that demon responds well to this sequence of taunts. Okay. <laughs> you know, I'm going to get what I want out of them by insulting their feet, then their mother, that, you know, so. It, it's, and your shoulder pads are stupid. Who wears right. shoulder pads anymore? <laughs> but you know and and so to an extent there's yeah there's there's these rule books there's the ceremonial magic formulas you know chaos magic starts from a little less from less structure you know Mm. it's it starts from a 
you know, you know the you know the building blocks. Create your ritual. See how it goes. You know, whereas ceremonial magic starts from well, here is the ritual that someone wrote down first. Now it's your time to try to make it work for you. So it sounds like the difference between a, a dabbler or somebody who's just fucking around and a magician is a magician writes shit down. <laughs> it kind of reminds, yeah. honestly, it kind of reminds me of the definition of scientists uh, for Mythbusters, right? The only difference between somebody screwing around and a scientist is the scientist keeps writing it down. I mean, that's legit. I mean, the difference between a redneck and a scientist is a redneck just likes blowing shit up, whereas the scientist is looking for different results. (laughs) The redneck just wants to put a bunch of black powder under a can to see what happens. The scientist wants to measure black powder first. (laughs) (laughs) Measure the the powder first, measure the reaction. (laughs) I mean, the rednecks are throwing shit at the fire, but they really just want to see shit soar into the sky. So, you know. Well, actually, that I mean, that is a, a kind of a good segue to a certain degree, all those topics coming together, because when we're talking about how things experiment, no Sarah, not the rednecks with the explosives. That's not the good segue. It could be. I mean, you guys never know where I'm going. But anyway, no, this is this was actually a semi-legit question. Um with the idea of how things have changed over time and returning to your Jewish roots and how things progress from one to the other. And even, even with reading so many of the uh, older grimoires, Mm -hmm. what do what's your take kind of on how, what's your hot take on how Jewish mysticism, things like the Kabbalah are worked with in a magical sense right now? Um, It's complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck it, let's just rip the entire lid off the can of worms. Long, longer than um, a TikTok video? I mean, yeah, it, it, like the Lilith conversation, like we were saying before, you know, the is, is you know, hermetic Kabbalah cultural appropriation question, you know, is the tarot cultural appropriation? And whether you're asking if you're appropriating the Roma or the Jews, depending, you know, or whoever, every time. Um you know, th- these, these questions do come around in a very cyclical manner. And I feel like, I mean, I'm probably going to upset people with my perspectives and other people are going to like them. But, you know, the, the essential issue is, you know, is, is well, how are we defining cultural appropriation? Is appropriation ever okay? Um, does it depend on the context of, you know, who's taking from who? Um, you know, the there are a lot of people who will say, well, Jews have been oppressed by, you know, so many people for so many centuries um, that, you know, we have to protect everything and no one can take our traditions. Um, and then, but, but it, I think it really comes down to well, for me, mm-hmm. um, what it really comes down to is how our how how Kabbalah, how Jewish mysticism at large is being used. Um, you know, it's I think the I think the the, the Christian Kabbalah um, side of things is an interesting little angle to look at this from. 
So, you know, you see in the mid 16th century, I guess, um, or I don't know, the earlier maybe, Renaissance, Italy, Germany, um, you got people st- starting to, you got Christian scholars um, reading Latin translations of the Bahir, the Sefer Yetzirah, um, and being taught uh, lessons from the Zohar by certain rabbis who believe that to bring on the messianic age, um, our mysticism needs to be shared with the world, that it's not something to gatekeep anymore, that this is something everyone needs to learn. And so they're teaching Christians too. And, you know, it's, you know, Pico della Mirandola winds up getting accused of heresy by the Christian church too, for saying, you know, that the only way to prove the divinity of Jesus is going to be through magic and Kabbalah. Um, and, and so it's, it's just like modern evangelicals today take text from, you know, the Torah to claim, oh, this was prophesying Jesus. You know, the, the Christian scholars studying the Kabbalah of the 16th century were publishing about how the Zohar represented more ancient Jewish thought, you know, of the era of Jesus. And therefore, it was the spirituality we need to prove the divinity of Jesus and the proof of Christianity um, because they, they fully embraced the apocryphal myth that the Zohar had been written in the second century um, by uh, Shimon Bar Yochai, uh, you know, great Talmudic era rabbi, but definitely didn't actually write the Zohar. <laughs> um, you know, it, it was absolutely written a thousand years later. Um, so, but they, they embraced this idea that it was written in the second century. Therefore, unlike rabbinic Judaism distorted by the Talmud, this will bring us closer to the ideas of Jesus. And this will prove the divinity of Jesus. And so that's appropriation with the, if not intent, result of sort of undermining. You know, it's, and, and so I consider that kind of appropriation highly problematic. Um, but, you know, other people would say it doesn't matter what the intent is, what the result is, you know, you just can't take from, you know, the, a culture that isn't yours, that isn't your tradition. Um, and, and I find that kind of blanket opposition to sharing of knowledge problematic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. More problematic than the appropriation that sometimes happens out of sharing knowledge. <laughs> if does that, that makes sense. <laughs> does that sharing, I mean, so the sharing, that's oh, hard. So does it, it has to be initiated by the group that wants to share, right? Yes. If, I, if yes. I come in and just take it, that's a little little different than coming in and saying, well, it used to be closed, but I'm willing to share it with you now. That's different. It all depends, I think, on on some of that too, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and Kabbalah used to be very closed. There, there, there was a time, um, 
I guess you could say from roughly the end of the Talmudic era, so like 6th century CE, to the, I don't know, 1100s, 1200s, um, when people, when, when texts started being published, you know, there was a, lar- a group of Kabbalists in Provence who published the first, you know, distributed edition of the Bahir. Um, but during that long stretch, um, Kabbalah was a very, very narrow, closed, initiatory, you know, at any given time, there might have been a dozen people who knew anything about these te- mystical texts, because um, it just wasn't the, the focus of the Jewish people. You know, this was not a, an important piece of tradition. Um, it was, you know, we had all these great mystical rabbis in the Talmudic era, but then the interest in mystical rituals to astral project to the throne of God and, you know, th- th- these weren't things that people wanted to, needed to focus on, you know, they, they weren't the primary interest. And so the study of those kind of texts became a narrower and narrower field of interest. Um, until they started to get published, you know, and until the Zohar was published. Um, And all of a sudden, you know, over the course of a few hundred years, you know, it went from being niche, nobody knows anything about this, to um, the, the Halacha of the Talmud and the Kabbalah of the Zohar being, you know, both, recognized, um, sanctified aspects of Judaism um, in like mid-16th century, you know, around the, the time of Isaac Luria in Sfat. You know, he's probably one of the most famous Kabbalists. He's, you know, you, you hear people talk about Lurianic Kabbalism. You know, they're talking about, you know, the teachings of Isaac Luria. Um, and, and, and so for a very long time, it was very closed. There was no, it was closed to everyone. And then it really opened up and Jews were, Jews were exposed to it for the first time in you know, <laughs> a thousand years. Um, and then others were exposed to it. Because if you're publishing, the intent is to share. It's not about keeping a secret anymore. Um, so it's, it only then started to close back up um you know here's an anecdote um you you may have heard people say that you know there's a teaching in judaism that you can't study kabbalah until you're 30 years old um that began in might have i can't remember the 17 or 1800s i i probably should look this up and double check but um there was a German rabbi by the name of Jacob Frank, um, who claimed to be the reincarnation of a prior um, sort of spin-off sect cult leader of sorts um, wow. named, uh, oh God, uh, who led the Sabbatean movement, who claimed to be the Messiah. You know, and so Jacob Frank was like, well, now I'm the reincarnation of that Messiah. And 
you know, the Frankists. There was a whole thing. There was a whole new sect that came about. And they, they, you know, were talking about burning the Talmud and only following the Zohar. And they didn't care about any of the rabbinical laws and jurisprudence. They just wanted the mysticism and the secrets. And the, the, the rabbis of Poland had to issue a decree following this whole chaotic moment that no one's allowed to study Kabbalah till they're 30. This, this, this was them <laughs> trying to, like, stave off future messianic chaos. Wow. Um, wow. I did not know that. That is fascinating. <laughs> and so that's where, you know, the Ashkenazi Jewish idea that, well, you don't study Kabbalah until you're 30. It comes from that. Because they were like, <laughs> no, this, this is bad. These people are going crazy. Can't be all um, these young rabble rousers doing all this stuff. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, they should have said 40 because technically wasn't Jesus 30 when he started flipping tables and <laughs> right, probably and shit, so. right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a really fascinating story because I don't, is reincarnation something that runs across in Judaic occultism? Well, or you know, it, general? it does. Like, really? Reincarnation is a significant theme in Kabbalist teachings. Wow, I actually did not know yeah. that. Yeah, Gilgul, or reincarnation, is, is, is something that is spoken about. Um, it's something that I don't fully un- I don't I, I'd say I don't fully understand the nuances of how any of this is supposed to work but it is something that comes up um repeatedly throughout uh Jewish mysticism wow. um yeah so reincarnation's a thing that's fascinating <laughs> that, that is, is not really something cool. I actually knew wow um there there's there's a lot of you know, you, you, you see commentaries on like the story of Jonah that that turn it into a metaphor for the journey of the soul and, and even of reincarnation, you know, is, you know, emerging from, you know, the belly of the whale, you know, as, you know, his soul in a new life. You know, this is you know, so you, you, you it, it's, it's an interesting one to try to parse out, but it's. Yeah. Well, and actually adds a, a bit of a wrinkle of nuance to me because I always wondered, obviously, they talk about different, you know, like Egyptian myths and other things where uh, uh, a god is reincarnated or comes back or returns. But it, it it adds a nuance to me like, oh, suddenly I understand why some some ancient Jews might be inclined to think, oh, this Jesus guy will be back because that's happened before. Reincarnation's happened before. So. That kind of, oh, okay. Makes right. sense why some would be inclined <laughs> to believe that easier than others. So, Well, you know, you see a lot of, I mean, I, I'd, I'd say looking back all the way back to that kind of era, you, you, you see a lot of syncretism in early Jewish mysticism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, you know, the, the, those first few century uh, mystics, uh, you know, we talk about Hechalot literature, uh, Merkava mysticism. You know, it's the, the stories of Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Ishmael and, and their followers um, going through elaborate ascetic, you know, ritual preparation practices and then descending to the throne of God or ascending, depending on the text. Um, 
I, I, I guess an early version of as above, so below. Right. 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 Um, but you know, the, the ritual preparations and, and the, and the hymns and prayers in these books are, are really reminiscent of, you know, Greco-Egyptian papyri. You know, it's very similar kind of content. Um, and, and, and so I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, the mystics of, you know, that era, you know, were influenced by, you know, Hellenic society. And, sure. you know, it, it's even uh, Kabbalist rituals, you know, a thousand years later, still read like mystery cult texts, you right. know, it's, there, there's definitely cross-pollination that happened early on. It, yeah, <laughs> it actually makes me think a lot about how, um, like, even the term appropriation, you know, because you got to view history, you, you view history through your current lens, but you have to realize that, like, for a term like appropriation, that lens just wasn't there, especially mm-hmm. not in spiritual practices. Yeah. You saw something that inspired you or impressed you or you felt spoke to you. You just, it just got incorporated, especially into a culture sometimes. They just didn't have that same word and they don't, they wouldn't even look at it the same way we look at it. Yeah. And, and Judaism wasn't even a, you know, closed initiatory kind of practice the way we look at it today until the destruction of the second temple. You know, it wasn't until, you know, we left Israel in diaspora that, that it became much more important to protect, you know, what sure. we had. You know, up, up until then, there was, yeah, it was cultural exchange was happening all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and more forcefully it, than others, but yeah. yes, yes, <laughs> sometimes more forcefully than others. Um, but I, I even get into arguments with people about how to view the Hanukkah story, you know, because oh, really? it because it's on one hand, yes, we're celebrating the the great you know victory of the Maccabees, you know, guerrilla warfare against you know their Greek rulers, throwing them out reconsecrating the temple but you know the stories are also well the maccabees were kind of the religious fundamentalists they didn't even like jews who had assimilated into any aspect of greek culture oh i mean they were really extremists they were fundamentalists who wanted to bring us back to real religious rule um and, and and so it's did you know were they stymieing further evolution culturally? Yeah, you know, I can see or, where that would be an know, interesting so debate. There, there, there's different ways to look at all of this, you yeah. know. So, so even in those moments where we're being oppressed and for, and some would say forced <laughs> to assimilate, well, but there were plenty of more secular Jews who are, you know as there are today. <laughs> mm-hmm. I will just put a, a blanket statement out there. Like we're not saying that we're for taking the beliefs of other people and telling them they can't do that because that's, that's the generalized 
description of appropriation, you know, something similar to what America, uh, white settlers did to the Native Americans, where they walked in, took their practices and said, you can't do this ever again because it's wrong, um, and then proceeded to sell their products that right. were all Correct. handmade by white people. This is, this, um, is an impro- this is an important distinction to make. <laughs> yes. Um, but what I understand that you're you're saying is if a tradition is given freely and publicized, put out there to the public, that isn't necessarily cultural appropriation for somebody to walk into a bookstore, pick up that book, and read it and start doing those practices. Um, and the way I kind of view it is, is another way to be able to step into someone else's shoes. If you're looking at what drives them as an individual. So a lot of people view their lives through a religious lens or through the lens of the the stories of their gods or their spirits or ancestors or whatever. And that's how they view the world. So if you are picking up a book on voodoo or a book on the Kabbalah or anything like that, and you're reading it, remember where these stories came from. And I, I'm appreciative that you stepped into the Hanukkah story, which is a very elevated and celebrated moment in time for a lot of Jewish uh, practitioners as being this wonderful revolutionary thing and very important to their, their religion and, and dissected a little bit and said, these are, these were fundamentalists, you know, they were, they were actively shunning other Jewish people and that were practicing the same religion because they had, they had or hadn't assimilated. And so that it's very interesting to hear you say that, but it's, I don't, I'm treading on very, on eggshells here. Um, I'm in my wording. So I'm how I'd put it for me personally is I'm never condoning appropriation. I'm saying that with the modern era of communication, perhaps there's more room for nuance in appreciation If we're Mm -hmm. willing to have those conversations and also when it comes to past events, we have to view those with more nuance because the toothpaste won't go back in the tube. Well, right. And you also have to look at who wrote those stories down. Right. You you have to look at the hand attached to the pen. I think the biggest problem is, is a matter of misappropriation. You know, it, 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 it's, 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 and, you know, you, you talked about the, the, the voodoo example, for example, um, where, yes, in theory, a white person can go to a bookstore, find a book, read a bunch of rituals, but are those rituals for you to perform? Those are rituals built out of relationship with a history and an ancestry that you don't have. Right. You know, and so, yeah, sure, you can try to do these rituals, but they're not really yours. You know, and 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 that's and recognizing that in your research and appreciation is important to knowing where to draw these lines beyond what's not my culture to touch. Mm-hmm. You know, so so I, I think, yeah, it's it is about nuance. Absolutely, it's about new. Well, and I think too that there's, I mean, I don't want to say anything that might 
go too far for anybody, but let's say there's a particular closed practice that I really admire and it really speaks to me. I think the, probably the appropriate thing could be to go to the people that that closed practice do belong to and say, is there any way I can support you? Because that would enrich me just because I feel connected to help support them and what they're doing. And then I'm not taking it for myself. I'm, I'm getting enjoyment out of being able to support them and what they're doing. I think that sometimes might be a really good solution. How can I support the people whose traditions are inspiring me? I, yeah. And I, I think one of like, I think what I was trying to say because like I said earlier, my brain is kind of shut off and it's just <laughs> like slowly working into motion um, is looking at someone else's practice, um, whether it's with them or through the words on a page is another way to understand that culture. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. understand a person who is very different from you, even if their skin color is the exact same, you can understand somebody by looking at the lens that they look through in a way and kind of help break down some barriers within yourself even. Yeah. I actually really like the idea of the thought. I'm not saying that's a solution to every situation, but it's another, it's another parameter I'm going to have to put in there. The use of the word misappropriation. I think that's really a lot of what we're talking about is, is misappropriation. And so that's a, that's a good bit of nuance to add to your calculations. I'm glad I'm glad I could add that to the the gears turning in your mind. <laughs> no, because I do like that. And you know, the, the, it adds another element like what what we should be talking about with these conversations, especially if you're referring to a culture or practice that even was closed because mm-hmm. I know there's a lot of people like if you look at, at social media at, at uh, TikTok and and YouTube and stuff, there's a lot of people talking about reclosing the Kabbalah practice. And that's kind of what I mean with the toothpaste might not necessarily go back in the tube. It's just like after all these years and all this publishing, is that a real expect, a realistic expectation for that to happen? I don't know. Even with all the conversations about appropriation, is that ever going to happen? Yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the, the Bahir was published in 1100 or so, you know, and, and, and that book, you know, it's, the most widely quoted book of Kabbalist teachings for a reason, you know, it's the beginning of all the concepts of the 10 Sophia road and, you know, reincarnation and the hidden names of God and the, you know, it's an and interpretation of the Hebrew letters, you know, as having individual, magical, mystical significance. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those, those books that influenced a great many people. Jewish and not um, that, you know, the theosophists read, you right, know, right. That, you know, it, it's there. It, it's yeah. There's no putting that toothpaste back in the tube. <laughs> you know, the, the, the idea of the tree of life of the 32 paths. Yeah, I mean, all, all of this, it's, it's, it's out there and it, and it's been adopted and adapted in all kinds of ways um, and entire new practices, uh, you know, the, the whole left-hand clephotic magic thing has nothing to do with the Kabbalah it's built on. Nothing at all. It just looks like it, you know, 
and and it's you know the, these things have had so much time to evolve and become brand new things right one of the questions from one of our our listeners was just about how like how weird stuff gets with now that there's mixtures of like Kabbalah along with chakras and other systems that you can find. It's like, right. All right. I think now we can have the misappropriation conversation. And, 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 and I, and it's all. likely that both of them are, you know, the theosophical, the theosophical society's misunderstanding of Kabbalah and chakras. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> okay. I mean, but let's, let's on a, be honest here. The chakras are, to the magic world like garlic is to cooking (laughs) honestly at this point like like the chakras were a deeply hinduistic tradition Mm -hmm. that was derived out of like buddhism and hinduism and doing yoga and all that stuff and then all of a sudden it just like breaks through (laughs) the barriers of the world and it's in fucking everything but it's in fucking everything in a form that would be unrecognizable <laughs> yes, to yes, it you know, someone who has sense. grown up in India studying yoga there. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I definitely <laughs> feel you on that level with regards to things like the runes. Oh, yeah. Yep. Because those have been newaged forward, backwards, upside down and left side and right side. And I am just amazed at the amount of bullshit I have seen people come up with with regards to the runes. Now, I am somebody who is mystically inclined, and I read with these runes, and I understand them as spirits. But there's still an amazing amount of bullshit out there. And it mixes with all of the previous shit we've just talked about. <laughs> Completely no grounding in the culture, no grounding in anything. Just here, I'm going to add mix this, and I'm going to mix my Hebrew letters with my runes. <laughs> okay yeah sure right it, it, it's like every time that you know i somehow stumble on you know some you know new age um practice that resembles some kabbalist influence and they've got oh you know and they've got you know the, the hebrew transliterated very strangely you know, with attempts at describing how to pronounce it and and translations that are not accurate. Mm-hmm. You mean you don't pronounce it Malkuth? <laughs> right. In all the in all the Hebrew letters right. inscribed on pieces of turquoise, just for that oh, vaguely right, exactly. Native American twist. Right. To yeah. <laughs> I got Sarah, I got. Yeah, I, I can see somebody doing store. I, I can see somebody doing pentacle designs using turquoise. <laughs> that, that hurts m- my brain. I mean, but honestly, the more we dig into it, there are so many things that have been ripped so far away from its roots to where it has like a vague meaning mm-hmm. and people are just trying to attach some sort of meaning back to it because they see it and they're like oh this is a very huge spiritual thing somewhere we don't know where so we're gonna slap some chakras on it we're gonna slap some fucking runes on it you know what hell throw some hebrew on it too <laughs> make it spiritual and it, it the four energies are going like huh? <laughs> 
<laughs> what the throw fuck? In these two Greek letters, or maybe one of the triangles, just for shits and grins. Yep. <laughs> and then call on Dionysus and call it a fucking party. <laughs> call on Dionysus. I mean, to a certain degree, you could argue that's classic PGM shit right there. I was about to say, call on Dionysus and call it a party. We're... <laughs> <laughs> I think that works for anything. Um, it's, like a, it's like a Dionysian boneyard. It'll be all right. <laughs> I could just throw in black powder under a can to see what happens. Exactly. <laughs> hey, as, as long as you open a bottle of wine. That's right. Yeah, right about your experience. No, no, no. If by wine you mean natural light or uh, what is it? Bush? Marlowe. Or uh, what was that? Marlowe? Uh, yeah. Miller High Life. Miller High Life. The champagne of beers. There you go. Right. <laughs> That's right. The champagne of beers. Look, I grew up with a bunch of rednecks. I know how they work. <laughs> Ryan, which which one's the banquet beer? Was was was, was that oh. a course slogan for a while? Maybe oh gosh, it sounds I vaguely remember. familiar. Right? Yeah, <laughs> banquet beers. <Yeah. laughs> Bastard! That sounds like such rank bullshit. <laughs> Just need some PBR in red, white, and blue. You're all set. Yeah, right. <laughs> 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 So a question then would be, is there anything interesting out of some of these things that have come up that are Kabbalah interests that you're just like, Ooh, that's an interesting application. I've never. Hmm. I thought that's a, a, a challenging question to put on the spot <laughs> with. Um, that's never I mean, happened on the show before. Don't worry. I mean, I, I, I was going to say it is as much as I, constantly have to contend with you know trying to decide what's appropriation or not um i i I have always found um the study of hermetic kabbalah interesting um i i have far more crowley on my bookshelves than i'd like to admit um but it makes for a good reference whenever i want to point out you know where he wrote about blood libel you know uh but it's uh and and even uh you know people make the argument that well it can't you know golden dawn wasn't appropriation because israel regardi was jewish but Uh, i mean he pretty much learned everything he knew about kabbalah from theosophy you know he, he he abandoned judaism as a teenager you know and it it's you you look at it, it's interest. I find it. I always find it interesting to read all these different texts through the, through the years and watch ideas snake around and permeate different things and change here and there. But I, I I don't know if there's a particular example that's on my mind to that's fair to bring up right now. I I have an interesting question that you may not have an answer for, which is fine. Have you tried any of the, and I'm going to do air quotes again, sorry for our listeners, but our new age uh, rituals that have come out of like the Kabbalah practice that has been kind of a little bit bastardized or twisted in a way. Have you tried to see the validity of any of these rituals uh, yourself? I haven't, honestly. Um, my, my own ritual practice has always been very custom, truthfully, Mm. you know, it's been pieces from here, pieces from there, rewrite that line because I don't like the way it's phrased, you Mm. know, it's, (laughs) 
it's it, it, it's always been very very patchwork piecemeal you know but so so i i can't i can rarely say i've actually tried a ritual as written <laughs> um i i, I it, it's always a variation based on well this piece of it doesn't really make sense to me so i'm going to insert mm-hmm. this piece of this other ritual instead you know it's those kind of things um, yeah i can get on board with that <laughs> it seems vaguely familiar <laughs> was there something you wanted to say sarah i thought i thought i saw you unmute for a second there yeah, um, a, a lot of the, these conversations are similar to ones that I've had with uh, Eli Sheva of Amha, which is uh, a primitive Hebrew uh, religion. Um, and so a lot of the, the kinds of conversations we're having, uh, she is the Shofet of the Primitive Hebrew Assembly. And so some of the things that we've been talking about are, are reminiscent of conversations we've had, whether it's the worship of Rachmai, or the um, way that ancestor practice is carried out, or the development of the spirit and the self, and all these things, uh, even even to the, the the use of lots in terms of divining the will of the gods, um, or ancestors or spirits, whoever they're reading the lots for. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting how a lot of these these conversations, yeah, we can we can definitely clearly point to, well, you know, this is definitely, as you were saying, this is definitely a Norse thing, but then there's there's cross currents where at least in my understanding, um even if our ancestor practices don't look exactly the same, the ancestors kind of recognize, okay, this is this is for us. You know, um, and the rituals don't look the same, but there's there's just this resonance or this reminiscence that um, when I was in ritual with Elisheva and her group um, during one of the convocation ceremonies they held, there was a definite feeling of familiarity, like Rachmai being the Earth Mother, for instance, like, ah, that feels really similar to Yorth, our Earth Mother. But it's definitely not the same, and it's definitely distinct. But there's still some cross currents that you can feel, even if what you're talking to, who you're talking to, is ultimately it isn't. You know, Rachmai isn't Yorth, at least in my understanding. But they share attributes, they share understanding, they share the body of this earth. So, not. Quite sure where I was going with that, but it was just something as <laughs> as we were talking was percolating in the back of my head. I mean, it, it's you, you you mentioned divination there, um, and, and, and since you don't know where you were planning to go, I'll I'll take us on a tangent. Sure, because um, a lot of that you you will not struggle to find sources that claim divination is forbidden in Judaism. Right. You know, you will not struggle to find sources that say divination is forbidden. There's, but there are a lot of commentaries, you know, throughout our history about what types of divination are or aren't permitted. 
And what you find most commonly, um, and in the works of like, uh, I think there's stuff in Maimonides about this, but, you know, like you can perform divination for the sake of receiving signs about what is to come, but, uh, there's, but not for the sake of determining a future course of action. You know, you, you, what? Yeah. Okay. That, that's where the rabbis landed. But, you know, how, okay. How would you apply what? that though? <laughs> Just to questions like, did I receive this message correctly? That's yeah. Thing, right. It, it, it's, you know, so, you oh, know, something, okay. you know, you get some sign that something's going to happen and you know, you go, okay, I just need to prepare myself for the fact that that's going to happen. So I can't less of a, change less of a, my plan okay. to avoid it. Less of a fortune telling tool and more of a, this is, we're going to communicate with God and see what's up. And Right. Just, you know, just in case we need to steal ourselves for something traumatic coming, you know. Because, I mean, we, there's the, uh, you know, we just had that, you know, blood moon lunar eclipse, right? Mm-hmm. right. You know, eclipses. There, there's commentary in the Talmud about, you know, that they, what they mean, you know, and, uh, you know, whether, whether they mean something terrible is coming for uh, the other nations or if something terrible is coming for the enemies of the Jewish people, which is a euphemism for the Jewish people. Um, I was hoping that would get a little more of a laugh, but um <laughs> Sorry, I didn't quite get to that. That one flew over my head, I have to admit. <laughs> yeah, it, it's been a long day. I'm very sorry. I got it now. It took a moment, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, but no, but that, that's the language that the Talmudic rabbis even used. Because it oh, is, if, if, if the calamity happens to our enemies, you know who's getting blamed. Uh, yeah. uh, now yep. I get the context. <laughs> Forgive me for yeah. not being bright on that one, but now I get where you're coming from. <laughs> I apologize for making you have to explain that joke. No, Those it's jokes all are good. always funnier when you have to explain them. <laughs> but you know, yeah, it's yeah. There's fortune telling right there. In oh, an eclipse happened. Something bad's coming. Who is it coming for? Based on you know whether it's a solar eclipse, a lunar eclipse, whether it's all these I, factors. Okay, so I think that's kind of funny because there's something in in certain uh, passages where uh, the the prophetess in the Nordic sagas, the the Spakona, is actually really fucking hesitant to give the prophecy because she's afraid she's going to get blamed for it. <laughs> so that actually really tracks. <laughs> Like, all right, look, you spoke this into existence. This is your baby now. Right. It's your fault. If you hadn't said anything, it might not have happened. That's really interesting, though. So, like, so you're saying that basically the divination wasn't events were going to happen. That was outside of the control. So the questions for divination were more like, who's it going to happen to? Yeah. Or just, yeah, it's or, or just the fact that, you know, something's going to happen. You know, there's certain signs, you know, gotcha. you know, that, you know, you, you know, cat crosses your threshold, you know, you see a certain kind of bird at a certain time of day, you know, the, the, these have symbolic meaning. 
and, and it tells you, okay, well, I got that to look forward to or to be upset by. Gotcha. But, but, it, so, but it's so not a, a warning to change your behavior to get uh, away from it. It's just like I see. An early That's really warning, interesting. An early warning system for good luck or bad luck. Yeah. Right. Huh. <laughs> I mean, they could have just hung a rock outside with a sign on it that says, if rock is wet, it's raining. If rock <laughs> is dry, it's sunny. <laughs> it seems like it would be much easier. No, it kind of makes a certain amount of sense to me, I think, because if, you know, um, so to, to, you know, if you're looking at a matter of, of action, reaction, things are going to happen, then it becomes divination becomes useful for, okay, if we know this, thing is going to happen. How do we minimize it? How to prepare for it? Whatever. It's not that, you know, you can't escape the reaction because mm-hmm. you can't, but right. how, what are you going to do about that reaction that you now know is coming? But my argument is you don't necessarily know what's coming. So you don't know what to prepare <laughs> for. I mean, you don't know. I'm sure there's, no, I'm sure there's centuries of writing about that as well. <laughs> I mean, there probably sure. is, but a stub toe is very different from nuclear fallout. Well, but what if the stub toe <laughs> is the omen that nuclear fallout is coming? I mean, <laughs> what if he stubbed fair. his toe on the big red button? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. So all you hear is stepping on Legos. Pay the fuck attention. <laughs> right. Let us know. I was just thinking it was more of a Michael Scott moment where he was making stuff in the <laughs> George Foreman grill in bed. He kicked the nuclear button. You know, one of those things. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I find it very, like, that's really interesting. I, hmm. Mm, there's, there's stuff so, to noodle on for me there. So, with that being said, do you have a formal divination practice within your own practice? I don't, honestly. Okay. Um, I, I have, I mean, I, I have experimented with different divination practices. Sure. Um, I mean, I've got multiple tarot decks. I've Same. Got, you know, but but I don't have any consistent personal divination practices. Um, because I, I've, I've never consistently exercised those muscles, you know, Mm -hmm. I feel, I feel like the ability to, you know, to interpret, you know, when you cast lots or bones, whatever it's, it really is something you, it's something you need to exercise. And, And, and my brain, I haven't spent enough time really getting comfortable, confident in, in reading the results. Hmm. Um, and, and, and so rather than uh, actively practicing, <laughs> I just said, you know what, this isn't, this isn't something that's going to be part of what I do. Um, it's, at some point it just, you know, and, and now it's like at this point, what am I going to, start learning to <laughs> cast lots at you know 37 years old and, um, we've argued on this show before that <laughs> especially for a lot of as far as occultism and spiritual knowledge are are spreading 
it's not necessarily be an expert in everything anymore. Yeah, right. <laughs> as long as you know somebody that is, you're doing pretty good. So, Right. You don't have to be an expert in everything. Right. America would disagree with that. And you need to speak with HR. America would disagree with that. Eric. <laughs> yes, America. We've insisted on being <laughs> shitty at everything. That's le- <laughs> that's legitimate. <laughs> be an expert in nothing. Just be a worthless. <laughs> My God, I think it's a hallmark of this show to drag our country of origin at least once a once a show. Look, I approve. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, America needs the dragging America. No. <laughs> like America needs to pick its shit up and get on with the fucking program already. Look at our elected representatives and realize those are the people that you considered most qualified. Mm. <laughs> no, that was the limited selection of people that I had to choose from. That <laughs> right, those are the people you didn't consider least qualified. <laughs> mm, <yes>. <laughs> <laughs> Which ones will not fuck up my life yeah. the worst? We hope. Yeah. So if someone's a newer person, uh, practitioner and wants to explore the Kabbalah a little bit, but they have their modern mindset of being uh, uh, wanting to understand what's appropriation and what's misappropriation. Where would you have them even start? I, I always think that the place to start um, just in terms of getting an introductory understanding of sort of what Kabbalah is about um, is I, I point people to Arya Kaplan's translation and commentary on the Sefer Yetzira, Book of Creation, and the Bahir. Those two books they're, they're the two most ostensibly reasonably likely ancient texts of the Kabbalist tradition, you know, excluding the, you know, the Merkava Hechelo stuff I was talking about before. But, um, well, in theory, they could be truly ancient. The Sefer Yetzirah is credited to, you know, the patriarch Abraham. Um, but, you know, it's... I, I think it, it's it's really about getting a good commentary. You know, it's not just about reading the words of these texts. It's about following how they're interpreted, how they're elaborated on by an intelligent rabbinical interpreter. Um, you know, Arya Kaplan's commentary to the Sefer Yetzirah is... You know, you've got the translated text and you got pages of commentary with footnotes on the commentary. You know, it, it's layers and layers of research um, and analysis, you know, that come out of, you know, a sentence here and there. Um, and, and I think it's important for someone to get a sense of that kind of intellectual rigor that goes into studying these texts. Um, rather than diving in on the side of, oh, here's a fun ritual somebody built out of, you know, these influences. Because um, if you can't handle that, that level of analysis and study, then, then, then I don't think it's for you. 
like that's a fair insight yeah yeah i i would actually kind of agree with that because i did once a while ago and it's still sitting on my shelf and i think i got maybe a chapter into it but a book on kabbalah and i was very dense and i could not for the life of me wrap my brain around it because i <laughs> my brain is more oriented towards like fantasy novels and adventures and quests and things like that so i tend to lean more towards like those sorts of mythologies of like incredible historic uh heroistic stories and stuff like that so i i gave it the the good sort of shot and then i was like this is too much it's giving me a headache, but I, I would and agree with your, your analysis. <laughs> I mean, there, there, there's different, there, there, there have been different angles to Kabbalah, even within Judaism, you know, for hundreds of years, you know, you've, you've got the, the academic meditative sort of analysis. You, you've got more ecstatic Kabbalah, you know, there, there's, you know, Abraham Abulafia, you know, had practices that were all about, you know, rhythm and music and trance states and, you know, that look a lot like all kinds of other cultures. Um, that, but I, I think, yeah, I, I always like to point people to the, the rigorous analysis first, you know. I don't know, maybe, maybe that's my way of minorly gatekeeping. I'm not going to say go go read about the, you know, the type of Kabbalah that's all about dropping to your knees and weeping, you know. But I mean, oh, I kind of, I kind of sort of do the same thing with Norse heathenry in a sense. Like I will push them towards uh, Jackson Crawford or Rune, and I'm going to butcher his last name, but we, he's been on here twice. Um, Rasmus. Yeah, I'm not even going to try it. Thank you. Um, and uh, Matthias uh, Nordvig, uh, those three gentlemen, and they're both academics and have, uh, I think, doctorates in Norse uh, study and yep. Icelandic study and stuff like that. And I would rather them look at those materials than go to Norse TikTok or Norse Twitter or anything like that, because you're going to run into a lot of bullshit and potentially a lot of white supremacist racist assholes. Mm-hmm. So it's like go go look at these guys first and then expand from there. Or talk to Sarenth because he's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> um are there any scholars in particular that you would warn people away from? Ooh. Um that you want to say and not want to put them on blast and potentially I I I don't throw yourself think under I'm a going bus. to I'd, I'd rather list scholars I'd encourage people to read that might be um, better I mean Gershon Sholem is sort of one of the most classic scholars on Kabbalah you know his books are everywhere and for good reason um my personal favorite is Moshe Edel um, I really like um, a lot of the stuff he's written about Kabbalah. Um, if if you're, let's see, you know, I, I mentioned 
Arya Kaplan already, but um, the other commentary on the Sefer Yetzirah that I think is fantastic is uh, Rabbi Jill Hammer. Um, let's add a woman to this mix of recommendations because she's awesome. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm not going to say there are people to avoid. I'm, I'm just going to, let's make it just a list of a few recommendations. <laughs> Yes, Aaron, you troublemaker. No, I'm <laughs> yeah, I I just figure just from listening to this, if you've got everybody agreeing on something, somebody is fucking selling something. Oh yeah, um, just <laughs> just off the off the rip because you've got like you you mentioned you've got you've got people who are really mystically inclined and people who are like totally into the exegesis. And if if you've got all these people saying you know oh it's got to look like this, somebody is trying to fucking sell you something. And it might be just their personal philosophy. Which, I mean, uh, I, I think a, lo- a lot of people are trying to sell you their personal philosophy. I mean, look, look at TikTok. Look at Twitter. These, oh these, are, these are cults of personality. I mean, yeah. ev- ev- every, every TikTok beef that I remember coming up was, you know, oh, you've got more followers than I do, really. You know, (laughs) I mean, at the core level, that's really, it was, it was so dumb. (laughs) There are some Ah! ridiculous fights on that app still all the time. I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, Yeah. Witch talk was, was, I'm sure is still quite a thing. I just don't log on (laughs) very often. I don't blame you. No, I gave up TikTok. Oh, almost a year ago now at this point so happy days y'all yeah, um, right just just as a, a general warning to anybody who's out there looking for any information on a new path that they're interested in seeking um beware of the people who really sell themselves more than they sell the path that they're on um and i mean there's a whole list of things of red flags to look for but if they're you know, really flaunting their bodies and have all these beautiful aesthetic things and saying, you absolutely have to do this thing this way and this step that's. And buy my book. And also buy my book or listen to my music or whatever, you know, that's, those are a lot of red flags. I mean, at the same time, like, you know, meanwhile, everyone should listen to my music. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, everyone should set up for our Patreon. Uh, <laughs> I mean, kind of like I think eventually you develop a f- a flavor of authenticity, whether mm. the person's got beautiful stuff on or not, whether the person's got a perfectly made up altar or perfectly made up uh, body. Even um, I think that the awesome authenticity eventually shines through, or it doesn't. Uh, I'm just thinking of all the massive amounts of folks that have just kind of completely shown their ass on TikTok alone this last year. <laughs> um, and I mean, that that's part of it. If somebody actively gets into an argument with somebody else on TikTok, that might be like if they're throwing somebody else on blast and calling them by name and maybe even was it stitching a video about them, you know, that, mm-hmm. that might be a person to stay away from. You know, whereas somebody who's a little more humble approach and be like, yeah, you know, something happened. It's not, you know, I don't really want to talk about it because it's not 
publicly worth it and then just moves on and continues teaching you what they're trying to teach you kind of thing. Uh, but you, but humble like, is not serious. what sells. I got to be the, the, uh, I mean, that's, and yeah. of the occult spaces here. Oh, oh, that, that, that's, that's how you game the algorithm too. I it mean, is, it is, it is. You um, gotta be stitching farming. and reacting and being outraged. And that's how you get yeah. more attention. And that's how people see your other videos that aren't outrage. We and, need and to yes. promote, we need to promote humbleness. It's a losing game. <laughs> it really know? is. And it sucks. Yeah, I'm so tired, Joe. The way this the way the algorithms work, there might be people out there promoting humbleness now, but you'll never hear about them. Yeah, you'll never see them. Right. <laughs> you will never see them. I the algorithm doesn't like humble. <laughs> like I, I think actually for me, one of the things I really appreciate about um the various rabbinical schools of thought i I follow a couple of rabbis on tiktok and i just looked up uh rabbi hammer holy shit she's cool Mm -hmm. yeah she is definitely (laughs) up my alley worth in terms of just like looking at her her work um and i find it really interesting the contrast where i look at hers and it's very ecstatic oracular and very body positive and mm-hmm. very like a very physical involvement, a very all in spiritual involvement. And then uh, some of the rabbis that I follow on TikTok are damn near litigious. Mm-hmm. And it's such an interesting contrast. And I appreciate that the, I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about like breadth of spiritual knowledge and infighting to some degrees. <laughs> <laughs> They've been taking place for literally, <laughs> literally centuries in some cases. Yeah, J- J- Jewish ritual practice, Jewish law is the the original law as we know and practice it today. It's you know the analysis of the words to find the loophole to figure out you know. I appreciate that, that, that's the rules. All the Talmud I do. is you know <laughs> the Talmud is endless catalogs of discussion between rabbis about well if they said all the days instead of just the days in this su- sentence in the torah maybe it would have meant the nights too but they didn't <laughs> so, yeah. i find it so interesting because like during one of these tiktoks i was watching the rabbi was actually showing the process of oh gods i wish i could remember what particular school he came out of but i can't right now but he was talking about how the torah has to literally be perfect there can be no blemishes on mm-hmm. the torah there can be no uh no, no, no mistakes. Period. And oh, by yeah. the way, if we have a mistake, this is how we get rid of it and fix it. Right. And there are rituals around that. And there are entire are... ritual practices about scraping off the letters, redrawing the letters. The scribe has their own ritual practice, separate completely from the rabbi, separate completely mm-hmm. from etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Wow. It's it's fucking fascinating. It's really cool, especially because I'm not in that religion. Being the willingness of these rabbis to come on and and really share has really been uh, eye opening and cool. And to a certain degree, kind of puts my own heart at ease because I'm like, well, fuck, I'm not that ritualistic. I think I'm doing all right. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean. We haven't got to the point where I'm like the the rune must be written in a certain order, and if it's n- if it's not done that right way, it's wrong. Actually, I, I think it actually points towards something else that is pertinent to a lot of pagan and witch groups is the fact that 
these debates happen in every religion. Yes. And sometimes over the mm-hmm. span of centuries. So don't think just because we're, and I'm going to go ahead and say it's reinventing a lot of these modern uh, practices. They're based off of ancient or our ideas of ancient practices, mm-hmm. but they're, they are modern. And so don't expect any one person to be absolutely right. Expect contention amongst the authors. Expect debate about her, how certain things work and, and be okay with that because that's, that's a, a vital part of a religious growth as well. Yeah. Our ideas about ancient practices. I think yeah. that's pretty crucial though, too. It yeah. is. It really is. It People really lose is. track of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like you're mentioning with like the traditions that surround the Zohar, like, Oh man. People absolutely lose track of whether what we're doing is an ancient practice or it's our modern idea of an ancient practice. I I think a lot of people forget that our modern era is very different than where that ancient practice came from too. Mm. You know, bullshit. I I skin my own cows. (laughs) Yeah, sure you do. (laughs) I mean, you do slaughter your own animals. I do slaughter my own animals, but I haven't made my own calfskin parchment yet. Give me time. Right. <laughs> oh, I believe you'll get there. Uh, <laughs> but that that's an interesting element to throw in it as well. Um, having studied more ancient texts of uh, that tradition, how have you molded it or modified to fit a more modern lifestyle? Like what has changed Mm. from like the ancient teachings to have been brought forward into your life today? Um, I'm, I have a great example, actually. This is a fun question because, you know, in the time since the destruction of the second temple, animal sacrifice is no longer a part of Jewish ritual practice. Um, But if you study these ancient texts, these, you know, wh- whether it's, you know, Kabbalah or, you know, Talmudic, you know, legislating. Um, one thing that I've always found fascinating is the, re- the teaching that what we're offering to God with the animal sacrifice, with the burnt offering, because it's not just about sacrificing the animal, it's about the burnt offering is is the aroma it's it's about tickling god's proverbial nostrils with these great aromas um not about burning something to a crisp you know to use up for god um and so that actually heavily bolstered um a lot of experimentation with different incenses uh, as well as greater confidence in kitchen magic, you know, as, as part of a Jewish practice that, you know, I'm sharing, I'm sharing this with the divine, but it's also about preparing a meal that people are going to eat. You know, the burnt offering at the temple was then distributed to be eaten. It was not, burnt to a crisp it was just cooked you know you brought your animals to sacrifice and cook them on the altar you know and then people ate them 
Um, and, and, and so taking that context, you know, into mm-hmm. modern practice has been able to, you know, add some, some different nuance to the way I practice things in the back of my head. Makes total sense, especially because uh, from a sacrifice angle, historically speaking, you know, um, a lot of ancient cultures did very similar things. Uh, I think the Greeks gave bones, fat, and I think skins occasionally into the fires. Uh, otherwise, if it was for a Chthonic god, it was buried, mm-hmm. generally, generally speaking. So that, again, and it, it, there were certain body parts that were set, or set uh, blood, I think, and certain body parts that were set aside. And yeah, it just to me, like a lot of this is like, oh yeah, this is just, yeah, the, the Jews of this time period are just totally in line with their neighbors. That makes total sense. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm going to sneak in late at night with a magical scroll and dedicate my local Outback Steakhouse to a god now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, right. Just, just, just yeah. dedicate the grills. That's right. As a, as a... I dedicate the aromas of this <laughs> wonderful Outback Steakhouse. Don't mind the inferno. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually kind of clever. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it would be a good <laughs> way of raising some energy, probably. Um, I, I do actually, if we want, if you, if we could, I want to take a little bit of a side trip. There's two things I do want to ask you about, and one is related to what we just talked about. A lot of your videos used to have to do with cooking. Where did you develop such a passion for cooking and what are your inspirations there? Also, I wanted to, well, I did want you to talk about your music a little bit as well. Sure. Um, so um, the, the, I have no idea where I developed a passion for cooking. Um, I mean, I, I've probably starting from just a passion for food. Let's, you know, um, and I, I, barely cooked um when i lived with my family you know there was no like mom didn't want anyone in the kitchen we stressed her out you know it was just <laughs> you couldn't come into the kitchen while she was preparing or, anything or you got in our way Get yeah out of the exactly <laughs> you're in the way you're stressed it was it was um i mean our thanksgiving coming up and wow it's less than a couple weeks we're the only thing that we're cooking and it's barely cooking, is the cranberry sauce. We've got a smoked turkey being mailed to us from some guys <laughs> in Texas. We have all of the, you know, vegetable sides and stuffings, you know. We've ordered those to be catered by, you know, a shop nearby. Uh, my brother's picking up a couple of pies from a bakery he likes, you know. My, parents, my mom didn't even like to cook, you know? <laughs> so th- there, there wasn't a lot of, you know, cooking with the family. It, it, it wasn't until I moved out on my own that I started thinking, well, I really need to learn. And I just got really into experimenting with things in the kitchen. And some of them go well and some of them do not. Um, and sometimes there will be months that I barely do anything other than you know steam some dumplings or you know boil some noodles and it's not really interesting to put on the internet but um but yeah whenever i had some fun project i did like to try to document it and put it on tiktok 
Um, honestly, some of them look so good. I thought I would have sworn that you were a professional chef the way you just whip <laughs> them together. So, well, but they they, they were almost always uh, experiments in the making. So, so one of one of the things that I've noticed with cooking, especially cooking foods that are vaguely related to one another, like take soup for example. Mm-hmm. There's always a set of steps that goes into it. Normally you put uh, like onions in with the oil first to release a lot of the sharpness of the flavor and get them a little bit caramelized down. And and then you start adding a little bit of seasoning. And there, there are always steps and rules to follow in cooking, which once you understand those, you can get creative. You can mm-hmm. change things up. You can add things as long as you add them in the right step. If you add them at the wrong step, then you throw everything out of balance and you have to figure out how to fix the flavor. You cannot do that with baking. No, you can't. You cannot. (laughs) I've learned Um, that the hard way. (laughs) Same. (laughs) Same. Uh, If you ruined, really ruined batches of brownies that were inedible. (laughs) Um. But I, I have actually found, uh, because I, I've been working um, on breaking down the barrier between my real life and my spiritual life. Um, and for our listeners, those were both in quotation marks, because let's be honest, there really is no barrier. There is no mm-hmm. separation to them. Um, but I was finding similarities between the two. And I, I'm just curious if you have a similar thought on this, but cooking specifically not baking, cooking, has a similar element to rituals. Mm-hmm. That there there's a similar type of flow and balance. And that's thinking about that and thinking about how dominant food is in ritual settings, especially when you bring a lot of people together in a group, it always ends up being a potluck. You know, people always volunteer like, well, let's eat afterwards. You know, I'll bring this or I'll bring that. And then thinking about it back in the day, people would travel for hundreds of miles sometimes to make it back to their homestead to have mm-hmm. this ritual. It's very important ritual. And you would feast for seven days or nine days or whatever. And so integrating the two was very interesting for me. So every time I cook in that fashion, which has created some very interesting recipes and outcomes that I no longer remember how to make. Um, please bring right. them back. They were yeah, amazing. Yeah. When, <laughs> when, when you cook with intention, mm-hmm. you know, there, there, there is a ritual aspect to it. You know, the preparation of the oils and the herbs and, you know, the, you know, and then we alight the flame and you get, you know, and it, it, it it's a, it's a whole process mm-hmm. that really, yeah. Well, is is this? I mean, honestly, I, I I say the the oils, but for me, it is mostly just the herbs and spices. In an effort to lose weight, I've been doing more dry rubs than marinades. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but even that's an intentional choice, you know. It is. Yeah. You know, and and it's it's whether whether it's an intuitive process. Mm-hmm. or a deliberate, like, oh, the, this herb represents this, and that represents that, and I'm trying to bring in, you know, 
whatever energy, you know, it's, 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 it's still a, it is still very much a, a ritual kind of activity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's especially when you get to share it. Yes. You know? Yes, absolutely. Especially when you get to share it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I do most of my cooking for myself, but I wish that wasn't the case. Well, where do you yeah. live? Cause I'll be there for dinner. every <laughs> night. <laughs> and a little bit more about your music too, if you were. Yeah, mind. sure. Yes. Um, so my primary band right now, we're called the New York review of cocksucking. <laughs> um, I, I, I play electronics and percussion of sorts, duo with a saxophone player uh, by the name of Michael Foster. Um, but yeah, I, my music is, I don't always call it music to people because um, it's not really about traditional melodies and rhythms. It's more about blocks of sound and texture and timbre. Um, but, but it has a, but there, there's still structure that someone could recognize as musical. Um, I, I, I do a lot of sort of off the cuff storytelling, um, I, 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 or reading texts that I find that I pick out in advance sometimes, but I do like just rambling to the audience about whatever's <laughs> on my mind and what's been bothering me that day. You know, if I woke up and my back hurt, you know, that might be talked about, <laughs> you know, but, um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know entirely what to say about my music. I, no, I, I mean, I feel free to, to, I'm, I'm easily Googleable. Look up my music. It's, it's all over the place. Um, you guys do like, small clubs usually or is just electronic yeah the, 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 la- the last show we played together was at a little record store in brooklyn oh cool um we actually it was a trio with a trumpet player who both of us had played with before separately but we'd never played with together so that was a fun first time collaboration i, I we'd even both toured with this other musician really but you know we hadn't done it all as a group oh that's awesome though so that was fun um actually the video of that's even already online um you could link that yeah (laughs) i'll I'll give you the the youtube link for that one put in the show notes so i thought it was a good one it was a fun show that's awesome it strikes me as amusing that your approach to the occult cooking and music are all the same (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's all very improvisational and understand the structure and then and, improv. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it, I like it, yeah, I think it all it all does come together in that way. <laughs> I mean, I kind of think that's what we're all generally doing as humans. Anyway, we understand the basic structure of living, and then we just improvise going <laughs> forward and pretend to know what we're doing. I like that. There's a t-shirt in there somewhere. I have to... <laughs> <laughs> Improvisational human. <laughs> I like it. But, uh, but what... I was going to say, Sarah, Caitlin, oh. any other questions that you had that you wanted to cover? I was just going to ask about what inspired your musical career. Have you oh, been a musical awesome. person your whole life? Did it start in high school? Did it oh. start in your adult life? Yeah. I, I. How did you get into electronica music? <laughs> 
Um, well, I've been, music has been part of my whole life. Let's start there. I mean, I, I mean, I, I grew up with, and I'd even say music on the more experimental side of things has been part of my whole life. I mean, I grew up with my dad's record collection that had everything from, you know, the art on, well, I mean, there was always the usual, the Beatles and all the classic records that everyone's parents had or, you know, or everyone had, depending on what generation you are listening to this podcast. Um, but, um, but then also, you know, the art ensemble of Chicago and Sun Ra and Morton Sabotnik and Steve Reich and, you know, all these like, you know, the, the, the slightly more out there stuff. Um, and I studied piano when I was younger until I got to that point where it really would have required practicing seriously to continue to improve. And I didn't care enough. Uh, so I switched to cello for a couple of years, didn't have enough coordination for it really. Um, I also sang pretty seriously when I was younger. Um, I even, I, I was the, uh, the little uh, boy soprano soloist with the professional men's choir at my synagogue for many years. Oh, wow. Um, That's cool. And, and yeah, but I'd always, I'd always kind of wanted to play percussion. Um, but I, A, grew up in New York City, living in an apartment. You can't really do that. Um, I mean, you could, unless you wanted to like your neighbors or your yeah, neighbors to right? like you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also, I, I, I had this idea in my head as a kid that drums were a cool kid instrument and I didn't want people to think I was just trying to look cool. Um, so it took until college that one day I was like, you know what, screw it. I'm buying my first snare drum, you know? And, and, and from there I've pulled together my hodgepodge array of, you know, giant wind chimes and other things that sound resonant and interesting. Um, but yeah, it was, so there's that angle to playing music in a traditional sense. And then I, in a, in a, in a past professional life, I, I was pursuing a career as a, uh, working in film and, theater, and film sound and as a sound designer for theater as well. Um, and in that practice of, creating and editing sounds um i developed an, incre an increasing interest in weirder and weirder noises that i could make um and so somewhere in the intersection of you know sound design and improvised music and like the jazz department in my high school and you know simultaneously stumbling on you know, Peter Bratzman, you know, free jazz records and, you know, Merzbau harsh noise. Um, I, I, I landed in the path that I've taken. Um, I'm many people have on multiple occasions uh, commented. I am the quietest percussionist they've ever played with. You know, I'll sit behind a drum and even with like, an amp underneath it, you know, the drums, you know, feeding back. I'm still quieter than most people banging away. Um, Cause I am much more interested in texture than I am, you know, beats. Um, but it's, 
but yeah, so depending on the show, the environment, some of them are more minimal and quiet. The one that we played recently was. Others are blasting harsh noise because um, I'll show up with just a table of too many microphones and speakers and everything will be feeding <laughs> back on itself. Oh, um, wow. So, and, and, and that's half the fun. You know, it keeps it interesting. It does sound fun. Well, excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining tonight. I, I really appreciate it. And these are these topics I kind of wanted to dive into a little bit more for a while now. And and thank you for humoring us and sharing your thoughts with us. Yeah, no, this this was very fun. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yes, thank you for coming to hang out with three strangers because we are pretty strange. <laughs> but this has been an excellent conversation. I really appreciate you much. being willing to share so much, especially of your your personal reflections and path. It's been really good. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. We appreciate you, our audience. As always, I will run through our Patreon supporters as they are currently the very next show. So if you want to get signed up and get your name read out for the next show, go ahead and do it now. And also on our Patreon, we've got a special bonus for our Patreon supporters. I put together every opening prayer from our first hundred episodes with some background music, almost three hours of prayer, which impressed the hell out of me. Um, and and that's a bonus for our Patreon listeners. I warn you, I, I did get a little trancy putting it together. It's a lot of really cool prayers with a drum beat background. So it's a, it's a good one. But uh, thank you, everybody, for all your, your help and support with the show. And until next time, we'll see you around the fire.
Sun.